Welcome to our special Friday Dispatch podcast. I'm your host, Sarah Isger, joined by Steve Hayes. This podcast is brought to you by The Dispatch. Visit thedispatch.com to see our full slate of newsletters and podcasts and subscribe to this podcast so you never miss an episode. And we'll hear a little later from our sponsor today, CarShield. But first, we're joined today by Jake Tapper, Chief Washington Correspondent for CNN and host of the television show The Lead with Jake Tapper and the Sunday show State of the Union on CNN. But we aren't talking campaigns or Washington politics. We're talking about why those decisions matter. Jake's 2012 book, The Outpost, tells the story of the Battle of Kop Keating and America's war in the Nuristan province of Afghanistan. That book has now been made into a movie, also called The Outpost. We want to talk to Jake about everything that went into writing that book and what it has meant. Let's dive right in. We are here with Jake Tapper, uh, whose new movie has come out based on his book, The Outpost. So excited to talk about this. Uh, Watch the movie. But I want to read a section from the foreword of the new book. Sergeant Dan Rodriguez wrote this foreword. He is in the movie, and he was also at that outpost at Cop Keating that day. Here's what he ended his foreword with. As with the book you now hold in your hands, I hope the film celebrates selfless acts of camaraderie in unprecedented circumstances. I hope it emphasizes the tragedies unforgettably so the remembrance of good men is permanent. I hope it will open our eyes and help us better understand the sacrifices made by service members. Lastly, I hope it's a lesson to military leaders that war has consequences and that leaving your troops in an indefensible location in the middle of hell is a pretty shitty idea. <laughs> Both <laughs> poignant, yeah, true, and a little bit of humor. Um, but I want to back up. He wrote that in April 2019. The movie is out right now. But this all starts as you're sitting in the maternity ward in 2009. Tell us how this project began for you. So I, my wife uh, and I were sitting in the recovery area of Sibley Hospital in Northwest D.C. And my son Jack had just been born October 2nd, 2009. And the outpost, this uh, American outpost, only 53 U.S. troops, uh, was overrun um, by up to 400 insurgents, Taliban, the next day, the very next day, October 3rd. So I don't know if it was that day or, or sometime that week, in the haze of it all, there was a moment that I was sitting there holding my son um, and watching this news report about eight other sons taken from this earth. And it was just a poignant moment. And I had heard about other battles, but there was just something about this one, maybe because of the moment with my son or I don't know, just the focus, but whatever, for whatever reason, I wanted to know more about the men who served, the eight men who were gone. It was the deadliest day for the U.S. that year in Afghanistan. And I wanted to know, everybody kept covering the story the way that Rodriguez just described it, like it was, you know, this base was at the bottom of three steep mountains, 14 miles from the Pakistan border. It was indefensible. Why, why were the U.S. troops put there? And I, I waited for the answer, and no one ever gave me the answer. And, you know, like a lot of people in journalism, uh, I, I started doing, you know, researching and investigating myself because nobody else was doing it. And um, the movie doesn't really go into that. The movie is, is more about the fact of the battle and the fact of why it was 
um, of, of the events that day of that big day. But the, but the book uh, is the whole history of the outpost, um, the push into that part of Afghanistan in 2006 to the end of it all in 2009. And I read this wonderful review. I, I don't know if you've read it by Martin Coos of the book. This is a 688 page book. You, <laughs> you don't spare a lot of details. And one of the things that Martin Coos wrote about it that I thought was perfect was that you captured, quote, the sense of futility is both intimate and writ large. And is, yeah. that's something that I thought the movie actually did pretty well with how, um, how do you feel that the book got translated? Obviously, from 688 pages, as you <laughs> said, there's a lot you can't include in a movie. Are yeah. there things that weren't in the movie that you that sort of you know broke your heart that you just couldn't fit those in? Yeah, of course. I mean, yeah. What's your I mean, what was your number one thing? I thought the camel spiders maybe would rank oh, high. <laughs> I mean, the thing is about the the thing is about the movie is that there is. Like for instance, there's a scene in the in the movie and and in the book where where Clint Romache, one of the heroes, who was later awarded the Medal of Honor, says, "We're taking this bitch back." Talking about the outpost, we're taking this bitch back, and it sounds like a movie line from a Hollywood movie. <laughs> but he said that, and in actuality, I think one of his one of his best friends, Rasmussen, says, "I'd follow you and I'd follow you into hell or something like that." And that's not in the movie. There's so much more that could have been in the movie. But to include it would have made it seem too much like the camel spiders. Like the, the camel spiders are these giant, they're not actually technically spiders, these giant freaky looking things. I actually, there's a horror movie made about camel spiders that, <laughs> that, that I stumbled on years later. And I, I sent pictures of it to a bunch of the guys who served at Cop Keating just because they, I mean, it makes sense. They're freaky. Um, <laughs> the, the heart, the, there are so many heartbreaking things. That, that, that stuff is fun. But, you know, just just guys who serve there whose stories were not told um, because, you know, it's a two hour movie. And that's pretty much um, I, I think, you know, I, I'm not a big fan of movies longer than two hours, generally speaking. And and, um, you know, you want people to watch it. it, it in, in my dream world, it would have been a, you know, a 10 part, 20 part HBO miniseries like Band of Brothers or something like that. But uh, we just couldn't tell everybody's story. So there's so many guys. I mean, there's this whole mission before they set up the outpost that involved you know that resulted in the medal of honor posthumously for a guy named jared monte uh, there's a big helicopter crash with a guy named colonel fenty a bunch of other tom bostick and chris pfeiffer and ryan fritchie just a number of heroes whose stories we couldn't fit in um and uh and so that's a, that's a heartbreak you know it's a heartbreak to to tell the parents who's you know i love these people and i told their stories in the book and then just to say not everybody not everybody's story can be in the book obviously we're telling the story of the big battle in 2009 but we can't we can't tell every story and that's that's sad but it's you know it's just a fact of life you have to you have to make decisions and steve you're with us today yeah, yeah let me ask the question to going in the other direction were there things that were included in the movie this is a fictionalized version of obviously your your book and a, and a true life story were the things that were included in the movie that where the director took where the filmmakers took particular liberties that weren't in the book it's a great question um uh there were some liberty i I'm, i don't really have any issue with the liberties that were taken 
Um, but but just to give you uh, a, a couple of examples, um, the, Ben Keating uh, served at, at the outpost, but he served in 2006. When you see the movie, it's as if he served there in 2009. Same thing with a guy named Rob Yaskus. He served in 2008, but it's as if they served in 2009. This is the flip side of the we can't tell every story. In order to tell those two stories, we um, we conflated. We, we, we put people who served with 371 CAV and with 64 CAV in with uh, 361 CAV. And uh, that, you know, that, that ruffled some feathers when I told, you know, I, I'm, I'm friends with a lot of these people on this specific Facebook group for people in the Outpost family for the book. And, you know, I, I kept them, I was a producer of the movie, so I kept them abreast. And that was, you know, somewhat controversial. I think ultimately people came to understand and appreciate, oh, um, he's doing that. So, you know, they're doing that so they can tell the story of Ben Keating, so they can tell the story of Rob Yaskus. Uh, and it's not as if there are like fake relationships uh, in the movie that, that didn't exist. It's kind of just like the idea of Keating there. But, you know, that's, that's something that that's, those are decisions you make when you make a movie. Um, and you, you know, you take some liberties. Another one is there's a scene where um, they have dogs on the outpost. And actually in the book, this is kind of like a subtext, the dogs that they adopt in 2006 and their offspring. And then uh, an incident that happens in 2008 that's in the book, in the movie where one of the dogs bites the hand of, a, of an Afghan. Now that all happened, but uh, it didn't happen in 2009. It happened in 2008. Um, so I guess, uh, you know, in the, in the spirit of telling larger truths about the outpost, um, some liberties were taken, but, but to, a, uh, in a, in a, I was not uncomfortable with it. Um, I understood the decision and I thought, you know, when you're making a movie that is based on a true story, not a documentary. Uh, sometimes you, you do things like that and I get it. And it's been done in any, any movie or TV show based on a true story. There are liberties taken like that. And it's just a question of whether or not they're ones you can live with. I, I was comfortable with these though. You are not a war correspondent. No. And you weren't at the time. You were a White House correspondent for ABC News. You cover politics, polling, yep. uh, <laughs> primaries yep. and the podium. Uh, that was not meant to be alliterative, but it sort of was. Nice. Um, <laughs> uh, and you're attracted to this story. So how um, did what were the upsides and downsides of that? Like you were coming into it sort of with fresh eyes, I would assume, to some extent, but also without that background of having lived in Afghanistan or embedded uh, for years like some other reporters. And then looking forward, how has that affected your reporting now, as you continue to cover the White House and foreign policy, but through this political lens, for the most part, on your show? It's a great question. Um, yeah, I was not a war correspondent. I had done one tour uh, in the ABC News Baghdad Bureau uh, right after Bob Woodruff was uh, grievously wounded. Um, so I, I forget when that was, 05, 06, somewhere in there. Uh, I, I had done that. Um, but that's it. And, you know, ABC News has a whole bunch of really, really brave correspondents uh, who are war correspondents, um, most uh, famously, perhaps Martha Raddatz, who's just, you know, one of the toughest and best 
uh, war reporters that there is. But I was not, I did not have that background. So for me, it was new. And the nice way to put it is that, you know, I bring a set of fresh eyes. Um, uh, the, the other way to put it is that I didn't know anything at all. Um, and, you know, I didn't know the difference between an infantry unit and a cavalry unit and, you know, all, all this stuff. And so that was, there was a real le- learning curve. I mean, I do think that one of the great things that people can do um, in their careers is to step outside their comfort zone and, and learn something new. Both of you do that and have done that uh, in, in your careers in the last five years. I've seen both of you do that. But, it, it, you know, it, it is a little bit nerve-wracking. Um, and, uh, yeah, becoming a reporter about the Afghan war. It's all, there was also, um, you know, a, a, a moment where I, I, you know, had to have a conversation with my wife. Um, you know, I'm going to have to go to Afghanistan at some point. I can't write this book entirely from the security of Washington, D.C. Uh, or, I, I mean, I did fly around to interview people in Colorado and, Georgia and everything, but I'm going to, I'm going to have to go, I'm going to have to go there. And I went there once with Obama on air force one when he was president and I was a pool reporter. Uh, and, and that was not enough. Uh, it was very clear to me. It was not enough. Uh, um, we, you know, just touch down in Bagram and do an event and then fly back there. They didn't even get to Kabul because there was a dust storm that day. So they couldn't even get there. So I had to get embedded and do all that. And it's just, it's just eye opening. I mean, you see, what these men and women um, who serve and sacrifice. And yes, by the way, there are a ton of women. There are a ton of women. All this stuff about whether women should serve. You know you know who's not debating it? Women on the front lines. They're there. <laughs> whether, they're M- whether they're MPs or medics or, you know, with uh, upper echelons of, of, uh, of off- the officer corps, whatever, they're there. Um, and in fact, when at the, at the early days of combat outpost Keening, back when it was just a, PRT Camdash, there was a whole unit of women MPs that some days I think about like, what would it be like to go back and write their story? Cause that must've been something. Um, but they got involved in firefights and all the rest. So in any case, so really just my go- best friend from college is, uh, she just got promoted to Lieutenant Colonel in the Marine Corps and I'm so proud of her. Oh, that's great. And I, I promised I would not uh, sit and brag about her a ton. We, we talked about this, but I just have to say like it, it as, um, it has always influenced me greatly what she has done and where she's been. And, and her stories of what it's like to be a woman in the Marine uh, Corps are certainly, um, you know, she's very proud to be a Marine, but that's it's, tough. Uh, it's tough. Yeah. Yeah. That's tough. I mean, what's the old line about Ginger Rogers did everything Fred Astaire did except <laughs> backwards and on high heels. And in heels. Yeah, the yeah. Mag- it's backwards and on high heels with a hundred pound rucksack. I mean, like it's, <laughs> it's, it's super hard. I mean, these women who rise the ranks are are, are superheroes. Anyway, how did it influence me since I, since I finished it is I think it just like gave me a greater appreciation for veterans, for veterans issues, for how much we as a society, uh, both just the, the public and the media and, uh, and our politicians just kind of like take these people for granted. Um, and so anytime I can do anything, I try to get involved even, you know, on a pri- private way quietly or, in a public way advocating, it bothers me so much, so much when veterans are attacked uh, for their service. Uh, I remember getting into a Twitter fight with a progressive on Twitter who was attacking Tom Cotton for his service. And, you know, like, I don't care if you attack his politics, you know, just don't attack his service. Like he served and, you know, what's going on this week with Lieutenant Colonel Vindman and Senator Tammy Duckworth, 
I just do not understand it. I do not understand it. It is it it, it is heart wrenching to me because I know what these people go through, um, and you know what Tammy Duckworth had to go through just to pick somebody today. I mean, although Vinman you know has a purple heart, he still got shrapnel on his body. What these people go through um, to get out of Walter Reed. You know, she spent 13 months of Walter Reed. Like I, so people who served at the outpost who lost limbs or lost eyes, like I followed their progress. It takes years and it is so hard and it is so difficult um, to like get your body up and running again after you've lost your legs. Uh, there's a hero, again, you talk about things that didn't make the movie. There's a hero in the book who served in uh, 07 uh, named Falconberry. And um, he was injured, and a different guy named Chris Pfeiffer was injured at the same time, and the wives were there for each other. And it's just, there's this whole emotional um, narrative, this just wrenching journey. Falkenberry made it. He's got one leg, but he's fine. Chris Pfeiffer didn't make it. And um, there's just so much emotion of all these great people who just serve and sacrifice for us. I don't care if they're liberal or conservative or right-wing or left-wing or libertarian or whatever. And to not honor that bothers me so much. And I don't think it would have bothered me. I think it would have bothered me, but I don't think it would have bothered me as much uh, before this book experience. Yeah, and I think just based on my own experience, working with veterans, um, covering the war, the other thing I think that people can't see, I mean, it's it's easier for us to depict uh, to show people, to talk to people about what the physical recovery is like in these wounded veterans, it's not easy to uh, convey to people just how difficult the mental recovery is. Oh, in this God, case, yeah. particularly because so many people who join the military, it, it by you know either by choice when they join or through experience and what they've done, it becomes not only a core part of their identity, but in many cases, their entire identity. And yeah. Yeah, I remember having a conversation with a, a, a former Marine who was wounded, who, who said, you know, when he, he, he was when he was in the Marines and he was uh, overseas, he was fighting, he was ripped and he, you know, jacked. And he was sort of the ultimate, in his words, the ultimate man, the ultimate tough guy. And then he got wounded. And he got chubby and yeah. he couldn't be this guy that he had been for all these years. And that was the thing that was hardest for him to recover from. So it's 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 a it's a digression. But that's a I think it's a it's a really hard thing to do. And I think um, you know, you've captured that in, in your reporting. Um, the, um, the, the, uh, you want to talk about also something else that was left out. There's a character in the movie a real guy, Faulkner, Ed Faulkner. He's, you, you first see him at the beginning of the movie, he's smoking hash. Uh, and, and, and Keating is like, uh, Faulkner's smoking hash again. Uh, and then, you know, he's a hero in the battle. He rises, he's, in the, he, he's a hero. There's this one mission where a guy named Josh Hart and a guy named Chris Griffin and Ed Faulkner all go to try to save the guys that are stuck in the, uh, in the Humvee. And they, they don't succeed. Um, but Hart gets killed and Griffin gets killed, but Faulkner survives. 
Faulkner didn't make it to the one year anniversary of cop gating. He overdosed at home in North Carolina uh, on like Oxy or something like that. And the emotional wounds of these people, um, the divorces, the alcoholism, the self-medicating, the number of guys who there's a guy in the movie, Jacobs, who gets shot in the face at the very beginning of the movie. He later committed suicide in real life. Um, uh, and, and uh, I mean, there, it's just, and the mental health care in this country is nowhere near where it needs to be. And the VA system, uh, there are a lot of good men and women who do a lot of good work in the VA system, but it's just not up to what is needed, I think. So the idea for this came in the maternity ward as you're holding your infant son, something that I'm, uh, you know, when I saw that part of your story struck home, obviously, because that's sort of where I am right now, but fast forward and your son is going to be 11 years old soon. And we, as a, you know, country have just signed a peace deal with the Taliban. And at the same time, you're in Bulgaria, you know, looking at this, scene that goes back to 2009 and all with your, you know, your son serves as a timeline to some extent for how long it's been since, uh, since that battle was fought. How has that colored your view of the Taliban peace deal? How did it color your view of sitting there in Bulgaria, watching this movie shot 10 years later? Um, and how do you talk to your son about that? So, um, it's amazing. You, you read, uh, the introduction to the new, um, version of the book from Rodriguez, who was at the outpost and also plays himself in the movie and Rodriguez, um, in the, in the propaganda film by the Taliban of the attack, you see Rodriguez running across the compound as the attack comes in. And there I am in 2018 with my son and my wife and daughter also, but, uh, we're at the, they had, Rod Lurie, the director, has recreated the entire outpost um, in Bulgaria, uh, outside Sofia, uh, in an old quarry by a mountain, and the other mountains were CGI'd in later. And there I am watching Rodriguez show my son his route as he ran that morning. And it was just freaky, but there's my son. Uh, you know, he's got his army clothes on and he's excited to be there. Uh, he's still young enough to not understand. Um, you know, the, the tragedy of it all, he understands the heroism, but, um, I mean, when it comes to the Taliban peace deal, I mean, you know, I don't have to have an opinion, right? I mean, I just have to ask questions about it and report on it honestly. And like, the truth is you make peace with your enemies. You don't make peace with your friends. That said, I think there's, but with so many other things that you report on, you are, you have not written 688 pages about the individual stories and the families and the wives and the children and the suicides. Um, it is different than covering a campaign. Sure. Absolutely. I mean, look, I mean, I, I I guess I see it in two different ways. I see it from the perspective of these troops and the sacrifice. And we've been there now 19 years and I don't know how much longer, uh, it makes sense to be there if at all, I mean, just on a, on a technical level, like what can be on a strategic level, what more can be achieved than is, than has been achieved. Is there anything more can the staying there for five years longer make sense, um, in terms of bringing some sort of sense and and peace to a country that has never really existed as a cohesive country. Um, 
so that's that's one and then you know so i see it from the perspective of sacrifice how much more sacrifice is necessary uh and then two i also see it from the perspective of you know i don't buy that the taliban has renounced al-qaeda i don't buy that the taliban has renounced isis i mean i just don't believe it uh based on the evidence uh tom jocelyn is a, is a great source of skepticism on this on twitter he's somebody i i follow and and uh so i mean i i see both sides on that and and uh i i i'm ready to ask questions about it i'm ready to cover it i thought the idea of inviting the taliban to camp david was insane i mean i, I thought that that was insane that not to say you shouldn't make peace with the Taliban. I get that, but like, I mean, uh, you don't invite. I mean, it's 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 really honestly no different than inviting um, uh, Mullah Omar or or uh, Osama bin Laden to um, to to Camp David. It's it's it, it, I thought that was crazy. I understood why John Bolton was so mad about that. Well, and and, and of course, at the time, the Taliban were still publishing videos about their alliance with al-Qaeda. I mean, the people yeah. who, 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 who conducted 9-11, the 9-11 attacks, and they've been inextricably linked and often have their leadership councils overlapping. I mean, Mike Pompeo made news last week um, when he claimed that he has seen evidence that the Taliban is now working alongside the U.S., uh, yeah. troops in country to defeat al-Qaeda. The U.S. public has not seen that evidence. I think it's important that, that we do see it. Yeah, um, no, I agree with you 100%. Let me, let me ask you, this is actually a sort of a, a similar version of a question that, that Sarah asked earlier, but directly related to what we're talking about here. I mean, there is this, I think one of the things that, that comes out in, the, in the, the film is the sense of hopelessness and sort of futility of it all, and I wondered as I watched the film, how much you think that's because of where they were physically, which plays such an important role in in the uh, the way that events unfolded. I mean, physically where they were, and and what a poor decision that was to put an outpost there, and how much of that really was the result of all of the other things that uh, were happening with the U.S. presence in Afghanistan. I mean, there's this sort of sense of overarching futility and hopelessness to it all that you see both in the fighting and then even when they go and they try to talk to the to the tribal elders. Yeah. Well, I mean, the book can be, you know, the book is basically an exploration of, of, counterinsurgency or coin and whether or not it works and how effective it can be and how effective it, it sometimes is not. Uh, counterinsurgency, for those who don't know, is the effort by the U.S. to uh, offer things to locals, hydroelectric plants, schools, roads, in order to get them to not um, align with insurgents. That's why it's counterinsurgency. Um, so coin, I think coin is very difficult. And, you know, based on the book, uh, you know, there are examples of it working. Um, I, I mean, I don't think there's, I don't know that I've ever seen in a, in a movie, a depiction of coin, like there is in, in the outpost movie where Ben Keating comes and says, he takes off his, his gear and he says, you know, we, we will give you projects, but you have to work with us. That's what it is. 
And I think it's very, very difficult to do. Um, I mean, in the movie, the, you know, the, the, these locals did not, they thought that the Americans were the Soviets who had been there, you know, in the eighties and that happened. I mean, that really happened. Um, you know, they don't, these people don't have televisions. They don't have newspapers. They don't have the internet. They don't know what's going on. Um, and I just think the, the idea of it and Steve, you and I could probably have a 10 day long debate discussion, uh, on a cruise somewhere for two (laughs) unlucky participants, um, to discuss when Bush changed from, uh, Afghanistan being counterterrorism and just going after Al Qaeda and, and when he decided to, to resume, to, to try nation building, um, a, a very lofty goal. Uh, and idealistic, um, but I think very difficult. Now, the book goes into detail about some of it working. Uh, in 2007, under the leadership of, of a guy named uh, uh, Colonel Kalinda, uh, it worked. <clears throat> they, they, they made lots of inroads. Um, and then they, w- they made inroads uh, the following year, too. And the guy, Rob Yeskis, who's played in the movie by Milo Gibson, Mel Gibson's son, um, he was really successful in, in doing this as well, bonding with the locals, having them trust him. And then Rob Yeskis was targeted for assassination uh, by the insurgents, and he was killed. And everything went to hell uh, in, in the valley after that. So I just think, I think it is a very tough thing to do. I think, so I don't know that I would call it futile. Uh, but it is, I don't know that it's an exercise in futility, but it is very difficult. Uh, and then I also think that putting the cop there, putting the camp there, and it was, we should note also, this is another strategic decision. This was done by Colonel uh, McNicholson, who went on to become a general and then the commander in Afghanistan. The, there was a decision to put all these little outposts all over northeastern Afghanistan to attempt to bond with the locals and fend off the insurgents who were pouring in from from pakistan and the reason the the camps were so small was because there weren't that many troops in afghanistan most of the troops were in iraq and the reason the outpost was put at the bottom of three steep mountains was because they didn't have a lot of helicopters because all the helicopters were in iraq so they had to put the outpost near a road so they could resupply it and they get to and from it and i mean that's really the bottom line is like um this is another question about like should we have been fighting two wars at the same time uh, uh, and that's, that's a whole other debate, but I mean, one of the reasons cop Keating was where it was is because Afghanistan was at that point being fought, uh, on the, on the cheap. Uh, and, and, and that's why there was these small outposts and that's why they were, at, uh, near the roads instead of on the, on the high ground. Let's take a quick break and hear from our sponsor, CarShield. Computer systems in cars are the new normal, from electronically controlled transmissions to touchscreen displays to dozens of sensors. But you can't fix any of those new features yourself. So when something breaks, it could cost a fortune. And now is not the time for expensive repairs. That's why you can get CarShield. CarShield has affordable protection plans that can save you thousands for a covered repair, including computers, GPS, electronics, and more. The people at CarShield understand payment flexibility is an absolute must, especially right now. Monthly plans can be customized to your needs with rates as low as $99 a month. No long-term contracts or commitments. 
CarShield gives you options others won't. You get to choose your favorite mechanic or dealership to do the work, and CarShield takes care of the rest. They also offer complimentary 24-7 roadside assistance and a rental car while yours is being fixed. CarShield has helped over 1 million customers. So drive with confidence knowing you got coverage from America's number one auto protection company. For as low as $99 a month, you can protect yourself from surprises and save thousands for a covered repair. Call 800-CAR-6000 and mention code name dispatch or visit carshield.com and use code dispatch to save 10%. That's carshield.com code dispatch. A deductible may apply. There's so real small ball on the movie. Something that stuck out to me that I, I wanted to explore with you a little is uh, because it's not in your book. I don't think this idea of thank you for your service. Mm -hmm. It's said in the movie many times, sarcastically uh, between the men. And then it said once towards the end, when the helicopter comes in, they get air support. um, And and he says, thank you for your service, ma'am. Uh, very sincerely, but still with that tone of, you know, sarcasm might not be the right word, but sort of mocking those who say thank you for your service in sort of an offhanded way, which was happening a lot from 2006 to 2000 now. Uh, You know, you meet someone who served and you don't know what else to say because you know what they've given and what they've sacrificed. And so you just thank you for your service. Uh, (laughs) Was that an intentional choice by you and the team for the movie? And what do you suggest? What do you tell people when you see them? So I, I, that was not in the book uh, that was added to the movie. I didn't have a problem with it being added to the movie. I, didn't, I actually don't know where it came from. It's, it felt right to me. I'd have to, I'd have to find out a lot of veterans served. Uh, a lot of veterans worked on the movie. Um, so I assume it came from one of them. I'll look into it. You know, there's a great book by a guy, I think it's David Finkel, called thank you for your service. They turned it into a movie called thank you for your service. And it's basically, it's not sarcastic at all. Um, but it is, uh, the movie's not sarcastic. It's about how difficult it is to be a veteran. Uh, and it's about the lives of people after war, but it is called thank you for your service. I, I don't know if sarcastically is the right. I know it's not quite d- the right darkly. term, but it's, yeah, yeah, it's kind of darkly. Yeah. I mean, I, I, I think that there was a lot of, to me, the addition of that uh, and maybe they said it and I just didn't get it for the book. I don't know. But to me, it was just kind of a dark humor, um, which you do hear a lot about in war zones, um, in order, you know, to survive people do a lot of things like that. But look, I say, thank you for your service to people. And I mean it. Um, and I, it's, I, I did not add that, uh, to the script. I go, although again, I don't have any problem with it. Um, I don't know what else there is to say. Thank you for your service. Thank you for your sacrifice. What you did means a lot to me and my family. I mean, I I, I think that I've never met anybody who doesn't, I've never met a veteran who doesn't, uh, who's offended by it, but I could see why troops would joke around about it. But that's a good point. I need to, I need to find out more about the origin of that because, because it's funny them saying it like they're it is they're giving each other crap thank you for your service like you know they're making <laughs> and they're making fun of us right in a way that's right they're making fun yeah. of us um, and we get to be in on the joke watching it yeah but then it's also an indictment of us watching it <laughs> yeah yeah it's i mean that's why i thought it was so brilliant when they added it because it kind of works on that level like you can understand it's not like they hate us 
they do appreciate nope. people saying it, but they also understand <laughs> it's just an expression and it's literally the least somebody can do. Like, the very least you can do is say, thank you for your service. Oh, that, no, I'm a good person now. I said that to somebody in the airport, you know? So I, I don't right. know. I don't know. I, but uh, yeah, I, I still say it though. I don't want you to feel like you can't say it. Good to know. <laughs> the one, of, I think one of the things that, that um, I've just in my own experience have, have found is very difficult, particularly when you're dealing with um, discussions or reporting or depictions of these kinds of battles or attacks is any discussions with the family of those either who were killed or wounded or those who were involved in the in the battles themselves. What has been the reaction? Um, you mentioned earlier that you're part of this Facebook group. And you, you're in constant communication with a lot yeah. of these soldiers and their and their loved ones. How did they react to this? I would think it would be incredibly difficult for some of them to watch this depicted on on film. It's a great question. We actually um, were so concerned about it that we had. Uh, before the movie was even 100% done. It was mostly done, but there were still special effects and sound effects to add. Uh, on the, around the time of the 10-year anniversary of the big attack, we had a special screening in Washington, D.C. Uh, General Allen and, of the Brookings Institute uh, uh, helped uh, sponsor it. Uh, he also served as a commander uh, in Afghanistan. And uh, we had a special screening for veterans. Not all, Not everybody, not all, you know, 700 people who served there, but for a few of them, and most importantly, for the Gold Star families, for anyone who had a loved one whose death was depicted in the film, we, uh, Millennium Films actually paid for them to fly to DC, played for their, paid for their lodging to see the, to, to see the film. And we have, we had grief counselors there. We had three grief counselors there. Uh, and, um, and we showed them the movie and this was, we were so nervous me and Rod Lurie, the director, and also the writers uh, and the producers, we were all nervous because we thought it was, and still think it is, a, a respectful tribute to their courage, to their uh, to the nobility of their sacrifice, to, I mean, every single person killed that day was killed trying to do something for their brothers, you know, either supplying, you know, giving them ammunition or defending the base, whatever. Everybody was trying to do something to help somebody else. And, but still, you don't know what it's like for, you know, these guys who have served there to see the recreation of it, especially because the outpost itself, the recreation of it, uh, the movie set was so similar. It was freaky to the guys who had served there. And then also, as you know, to see a loved one who's no longer with you depicted on, on film, and to see their death depicted on film, what would that be like? I mean, I can't relate to any of that. The service, the the seeing a, a fallen loved one depicted in a movie, seeing their death depicted. But thankfully, afterwards, you know, I went around to all the families. You know, Ben and uh, Ben Ben Keating's parents, Ken and Beth Keating, uh, and you know, to every single person uh, who was there, and they all felt positive as positively as you can feel uh, about the movie that it honored them that it was respectful that it um that it was a tribute that it wasn't it's not you know it's not gratuitously violent there's there's there, it's not there there it doesn't glorify the war it also doesn't doesn't demonize it in any way it just it, it's depicted 
factually, intensely, emotionally, immersively. And so, um, I mean, while you can never get 100% of any group of people to agree on everything, I would say that for the most part, the feedback has been very, very positive um, and very, very supportive. And families, I mean, one of the other things that you have to remember is when I started writing this book in 2009, 2010, nobody knew about this. There, this, you know, it was just another day in, in, in this era. I mean, casualties are down uh, in Afghanistan significantly now because the footprint is so much smaller and what we're doing there is so different. But in this era, I mean, Cop Keating was the deadliest day in 2009 with eight U.S. service members killed. But the year before at Wanat, nine were killed. I mean, like it just there were there were these you know, very deadly days going on and people didn't, they didn't know and people didn't pay attention and they didn't know the names. Um, and the, so the subtitle of the book was an untold story of American valor and it's not untold anymore. Um, when we, re we, when we released the new copy of the book, it's now it's just called the outpost. Um, the, the most heroic battle in Afghanistan, cause it's not, it's not untold. I told it in my book, uh, two of the guys have now been awarded the Medal of Honor, Clint Romache and Ty Carter. So the stories have been told um, on that level. Uh, Romache wrote a book, Red Platoon, uh, that that you know sold a lot of uh, sold a lot of copies. is a great book. Rodriguez wrote a book called Rise about his personal journey. Now this movie's out there. There's the Medal of Honor series on Netflix, uh, ten episodes. Two of them, two of the episodes are about this battle. One about Clint. One about Ty. So it has been told. So I think that there is some, there's no such thing as closure, right? And there's no such thing as, as getting over the, the, the death of a loved one or a traumatic event. But I think it has been some measure of comfort that there was such an effort to tell the story. And so that people know the name Ben Keating or Josh Kirk or Rob Yaskos or whatever. So those names are not forgotten to the wind. Um, and, uh, I think that that is helpful now. Also, it's not, you know, for the people who, who died at cop Keating or, or in the book, but not in the movie, like it's not helpful to them, you know, because those stories have not been told. So maybe I have to get a TV deal or something to tell the rest of the stories, but, but, uh, well, that actually leads to my next question, yeah. which is what's the next untold story that you're going to tell Jake, what are you working on? Well, I'm, I mean, I, I, I've been lately just doing writing novels because it's so much uh, less emotionally exhausting. <laughs> and it's just, uh, I mean, writing The Outpost and just the whole, the whole experience um, is just heart-wrenching uh, just because of all the pain and all the sacrifice. Um, I will write another nonfiction book sometime. Um, but I, would, I mean, it, it, I still can't believe that I wrote this book. Uh, like it's still strange to me. Like, I still can't believe that my wife let me come home from work every day and then just like work again in this, in my study and spend all my weekends and all my holidays and everything working on this book. I can't believe she let me go to Afghanistan twice and fly all over the country interviewing these guys. I mean, it was such a late, it was such an obsession. Uh, so it's hard for me to just say, well, now I'm going to do this battle. Cause it wasn't like that. It was like, I was called to not called, but I, I, I became obsessed 
to tell the story. So I don't know what's next. I'm working on another novel, which is a lot more fun and a lot more, uh, a lot easier emotionally. Not writing novels is tough, but it's not like interviewing somebody about the death of their husband. That's what's the plot of this one. Well, the last book was called the hellfire club. It was a 1954 thriller during the McCarthy era where the hero is a young Republican Congressman Charlie Martyr and his wife Margaret, and they move to DC and get enmeshed in a, in a big scandal of the time. So this one takes place uh, a few years later, and it's basically um, Bobby Kennedy, the Attorney General in 1962, basically blackmails them to go out to Hollywood and find out if Sinatra is actually mobbed up, or if it's or if it's just <laughs> You know, or if it's just kind of like a front for, you know, and, and not really something serious. So that's so it's, it's so it's, it's Charlie and Margaret in Hollywood during the Rat Pack era. Uh, and again, it's just it's fun for me to write. It's not, you know, it, it, it kind of sounds like maybe Jake Tapper doesn't know how to relax. <laughs> <laughs> that's fair. That's a, that's, a, that's a fair observation. I don't know how to relax. It's true. It's true. The rest of us are able to sit by a pool and enjoy our drinks with the little umbrellas in them, but not Jake Tapper. It's true that, and like we, even when I'm off, like I'm off this week, and I feel like, oh my god, I'm not contributing anything to society. What am I? <laughs> I, I do, I do have difficulty with that. I don't know. Maybe it's because uh, of my upbringing. I don't know what it is. It's a little crazy. I agree. All right, Jake. Scott Eastwood, Clint Eastwood's son, is in this movie. Yes. Milo Gibson, Mel Gibson's son, is in this movie. Yes. Orlando Bloom is in this movie. Uh, it's a pretty big cast. Who plays Jake Tapper in the movie that will portray <laughs> Jake Tapper? Um, well, I, you know, I always think that it needs—it obviously needs to be somebody around my age who. Um, <laughs> uh, yeah, I, I leave it up to you guys, but I mean, I think it has been suggested on Twitter when this question has been <laughs> asked. It has been suggested that Jason Bateman. Some people say John, Jason Bateman wouldn't be bad. I, you know, I oh. I would take Jason Bateman. He's he's. Uh, um, He's, I'm a big fan. Yeah, what's not to like? Um, but I mean, I I, the development. Yeah, um, I I don't I don't know. I uh, I mean, uh, uh, Steve, who do you think should play Jake? I mean, that's a that's a really good question. You know, with my vast command of all things um, pop culture, <laughs> I'm just struggling literally to come up with the name of another actor who's about his age. <laughs> Paul Rudd and I. Paul Rudd and I are a month apart. Uh, and, and oh, that would be really good. So yeah, I mean, he's obviously much better looking than I am, but he could probably do it. I think he's. I think he could probably do it. <laughs> I don't think. But the, the thing is, somebody said something like, "Who plays?" Oh, Jack Schaefer asked me, "Who plays? Who plays me in the in the movie?" I'm like, "I'm not in the movie. Why would I be in the movie?" <laughs> the guy who like tracks them down years later and asks them to ask them questions is the least heroic. Well, that's thing not. In, that's not entirely true. You are in the movie at the end. Uh, oh, with the interviews, which I, right. if, if I have one major critique of the movie, it's that I wish y'all had done more of that in the credits and that that had gone on longer. So just to, for people who haven't seen the movie yet, uh, at the very end. So one of the first things I did when I joined CNN was, uh, I did a documentary about Clint Romache, uh, and then, then Ty Carter got his medal of honor and I did a documentary about him. Uh, so, I mean, Jeff Zucker has been very supportive of this, I should note. And, and, and he let, the movie show little excerpts of me interviewing Ty and me interviewing Clint, as well as interviews that Rod Lurie did on the set of people who actually served there. And to me, honestly, that to me, I love that part of the movie because it just reminds you, this isn't just a movie. 
this really happened to these guys. And these are, here is the real Ty Carter. Here is the real Clint Romache. Um, this, they are now in this interview describing things you just saw. So you're familiar enough with what they're talking about. Uh, and you see how upset they are. Um, I, I, I thought that was great, Arad, to, to add. Just anything to remind people that this is real. This really And happened. how can we go watch the full documentaries as well? The full documentaries are, I, I had Zucker put them on, uh, they're on the CNN Go app. So you can go, if you have CNN Go on your phone or CNN Go uh, on your TV, on your smart TV, uh, the documentaries are available. I had them, I had them uh, put them up there. One is called uh, An Unlikely Hero. That's about uh, Ty Carter. And uh, uh, An American Hero is the one about Clint Romache. So they're both there. Uh, just, just, I guess, Google hero and you should, or not Google search hero, uh, on the CNN go app. And you can see the real story with real footage. Uh, and, um, I mean, these guys are just, they're just incredible, you know? And it's funny cause we all, we sit in DC and we, you know, we get horrified by nasty tweets and this and that. And like, you know, it's, it's what these guys going through. It's just, and, and people like them continue to go through is just, uh, unfathomable sometimes. So listeners, highly recommend the book, The Outpost by Jake Tapper. The movie is fantastic and just came out, available on Google Play for rental or purchase. And get the CNN Go app to watch the real stories with Jake interviewing some of the heroes of the movie and the book. Jake, thank you so much for telling the story. Thank you so much for coming here and sharing your story of telling the story with mm-hmm. our listeners. Um, I think, I think you know, you said, what have you done to contribute to society this weekend? Uh, you've done a lot <laughs> in, in telling these stories. So I think that has made a, a big impact. Well, thank you, Stephen and Sarah, for, for having me on. And, and uh, I really appreciate it. And as you know, I'm, I'm fond of both of you and the work you do. So thank you so much. Mm-hmm.